Tonight I want to continue speaking on the topic of happiness. And you may remember that this is the fifth in a series of talks. Tonight I want to speak about the happiness possible through developing understanding. And we should understand that knowledge or understanding is of three kinds. First, there's the type of knowledge or understanding that comes from thinking, from using the power of rational, logical thought and deduction or reasoning. That type of knowledge which we come to through our own power of thinking. Secondly, there's the type of knowledge or understanding that comes from others what we learn from teachers, from books, from hearing about others' ideas. And we can reflect on what we've heard and indeed arrive at some understanding, some knowledge. And thirdly, there's the knowledge that is gained from development of mind. And I spoke last about the development of loving-kindness and the happiness that results from uh, absorption or deep concentration on love. That's one type of mental development, developing the mind to uh, access and to understand the power of a concentrated mind. But tonight I want to speak about the understanding that comes with the developed mind that practices insight or vipassana, such as we're doing here. And the knowledge that we gain from insight is knowledge into the characteristics of all phenomena, their impermanence, their inability to provide a satisfactory fulfillment, sense of fulfillment, and their insubstantial or non-autonomous nature. We know from having sat here for these two or more months how much of our unhappiness comes from obsessive reflection on who I am, what I want, and what I believe. And if you give a moment just to consider how much of these two months has been spent thinking about those three things, you can get an idea of just how powerful these tendencies are in the mind to speculate and to ruminate on these topics. If we can see into the functioning of the mind, into the way the mind obsesses on who I am, what I want, and what I believe, then we can begin to let go of these compulsive mental habits. So tonight I want to talk about these three tendencies 
in the mind. And I want to talk about how insight, or the practice that we're doing here, overcomes temporarily these tendencies in the mind. There's a word in the Pali language called papancha. And papancha means, literally, that which is an obstacle in front of the feet. But more generally, we can call any obstacle or impediment or burden, hindrance, papancha. A second meaning of papancha is uh, diffusion, uh, proliferation, differentiation, the manifest and manifold nature of the phenomenal world we live in is considered papancha or has the meaning of papancha. There are traditionally identified three fields of papancha. Who I am, pride or conceit, what I want, craving or desire, and what I believe, views and opinions. So I want to speak about these three tendencies and how we notice and what we can do with them in our practice. The first area of considerable reflection is, who am I? Who am I in relation to others? Who am I as a sense of what can I know about and take pride in of myself? The Pali word is mana, and it means self-preoccupation or a solidification of a sense of I in relation to others. And we should understand that all of us, not just you, but all of us engage in extensive comparing. Men compare themselves to other men. Women compare themselves to other women. Young people compare themselves to young and old. And it's endless how we can find ways of comparing ourselves with others. We should understand in the Buddhist language, the word mana, which we translate as pride or conceit, really has three, there are really three kinds of mana. And the first is what we all know of as pride. And that's a uh, feeling of superiority in comparison to others, where we really exalt ourselves, or we have a very exalted self-esteem, a very exalted uh, positive judgment of ourselves. But in the Buddhist 
understanding of mana. There also is what is called the pride of, or the conceit of equality, not only superiority, but of equality, where one considers himself the equal of others. And maybe in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where everyone is equal, we may tend to agree that indeed we all are equal, overlooking obvious differences. A third kind of mana in the Buddhist understanding is inferiority, conceit. The feeling of being inferior to others when we compare ourselves to others. This too is considered mana and a source of solidification of a sense of I. And so it's not only that which we usually understand of as pride, but there's also the exalted or the lowly and the equal ways of comparing ourselves to others, all of which solidify a sense of I. This conceit is considered papancha because it really expands and diffuses throughout our mind. And we can compare ourselves innumerable ways, our education, our attainments, our wealth, our knowledge, our looks, our appearance, size, shape. Any number of ways of comparing. And it often results in a walking around generally feeling very different than others. And we all have that arrogance of, I'm different than you because X, Y, Z. Positive, negative, or equal, doesn't matter. We still solidify around a sense of I in comparison to others. In fact, in America, maybe in all of the West, maybe in all of the world now, it's really considered admirable to have some quality, some experience, or some attainment that is yours alone. Just look at the... Uh, efforts that people will go through to get themselves in the Guinness World Book of Records. All for an enhancement of that sense of I, a solidification of I am the greatest, somehow. This pride or this conceit results from the illusion of permanence. When we judge ourselves, however we judge ourselves, there is implicit in it a belief or an understanding that that judgment holds throughout time, unchanging. And not only in the worldly life that we live is there conceit or mana. Here too, among yogis, there's a pretty healthy, um, rampant, comparing mind. You may have noticed. 
You may have noticed your mind saying, hmm, I'm able to sit a little longer than someone else. Or, I'm not able to sit as long as someone else. Or, what are these people talking about when they're asking those questions about subtle experiences? I don't have any of those. Or maybe, gee, I'd like to have some of those. Or maybe we're so uh, bold as to expose our experiences for that enhancement of ourself that results. And often, and you'll see, at the end of the retreat, when you begin to talk a little bit among yourself, just how much the sense of I comes out and how solid that experience we had back in September or October appears now. It's a way of establishing our credentials, you know. I'm a good yogi because, you know, I sat for so long, I sat in my room, I walked slower than you, I da-da-da-da-da-da-da. In any event, when we compare ourselves and evaluate and judge ourselves in that way, we are solidifying a sense of I. There is, in Dharma practice, healthy, um, how to say this, healthy mana, not healthy conceit, but there is a healthy uh, way of um, comparing yourself to others. And it's when it's in the service of uh, awakening, then there can really be a positive effect from uh, comparison of yourself with others. In this sense, if one finds themselves rather lackadaisically wandering through the retreat and you notice someone who seems to be extremely diligent in their practice, you might get a sense of, God, I'm not really doing as well as I could and maybe I should uh, you know, buckle down, tighten up, follow the schedule, do it. And if that type of reflection leads you to actually uh, practice with a little more diligence or a little more care and precision, then in fact that type of comparison is useful. The comparison that isn't useful is that which does not lead to awakening, but leads merely to a sense of self-enhancement. Mana, or pride, or conceit, is really subtle at times, and often seemingly impossible to overcome. As you may have noticed when you've tried to note the comparing mind, how determined it can be in arising in the mind. And in fact, insight practice can temporarily overcome 
this tendency. But it isn't until what is called full enlightenment or full understanding that we actually eradicate and uproot that tendency in the mind of comparing. One time after I'd been in Burma for, I think, a little more than a year, one of the Burmese monks that could speak English, I was speaking to him briefly, and in the course of the discussion, he asked me if I ever practiced without speaking. And, you know, like you here, for the most part we're in silence, but somehow we find a reason to speak, you know, as often as we want, a little bit every day or something. And so too in the monastery in Burma, I was pretty uh, casual and would find some reason to speak a little bit each day. And so I said, no, I, I, I mean, I try, but often I speak a little bit each day. And he said, well, I, I've, I've practiced some without speaking at all. He says, you ought to try it. So in my mind, I right then said, okay, for the next uh, three days, I was modest, I'll try practicing without speaking. And as it so happened, uh, I had occasion to speak all three of those days. Mm-hmm. Someone came to see me, etc., etc., and it was a total failure. But I, I did get a sense, just a glimpse of how powerful it could be to really take a de- make a determination or resolve to practice without speaking. So at the end of those three days, I made another resolve to go another four days to make it a full week. And I don't really remember what happened those four days. I don't remember if I spoke or not. But it was some time later that uh, friends were coming or came from the States. Joseph and Sharon and others came to practice in Burma at the same monastery I was at. And when they arrived, I was very excited and, oh boy, friends, someone to talk to. And I was talking to them when they first read the night they arrived and having a good old time getting the news of the States in here. And The next day, one of the monks who had been with me during the time prior to that said to me, oh, I see you're talking again. And I said, yeah, why? What, what's the problem? I was just talking to Joseph and Sharon. And he said, well, you know, you haven't spoken for six weeks. He said, every time I see you, you would avoid me and you wouldn't talk. And I haven't seen you speaking to anyone. And I didn't realize until I reflected that it was, had been about six weeks prior to that that I was speaking to the monk about not of practicing without speaking. And the clearest thing I can remember about that period of time was the sense of I or a, a feeling of who I am in relation to others was really coming apart. And the insight into how everything we say somehow is, almost everything we say, is in the service of bringing up a sense of myself and presenting it to the world to get it affirmed or confirmed in some way. And when you don't speak and you don't present a sense of yourself to the world for confirmation, it really falls away powerfully, frighteningly. 
So conceit or pride or sense of I in comparison to others. The first in obsessive tendency in the mind. The second papancha I want to speak about is all of the wanting that we go through. What we want to be happy. What we need to finally stop craving. And it's that hunger, it's that craving, it's that uh, excitement for something, some stimulation. It is the chief root of this continuing wandering around through lifetimes in this deluded state of mind. Continually wanting for something to provide us a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. The most obvious form of wanting is wanting sensual experiences, wanting our sittings to be a little more comfortable, wanting the food to be a little more salty, a little more sweet, wanting to be a little warmer, a little cooler, a little quieter, wanting our senses to be stimulated in the way that's most pleasant for us. It's important to understand that this wanting arises due to feeling. The feelings of pleasantness or unpleasantness that we experience, the desire for more pleasant, and the desire to get away from what's unpleasant. And it's an important and vital place in practice to begin to notice feelings of pleasantness or unpleasantness prior to craving or aversion. When craving is present, we cannot be satisfied. We can't be content with whatever our experience is. And we crave for more of what is pleasant, or we crave for what we imagine is better than what we've got. It takes a yogi to know just how much we can want. (laughs) And not only how much, but how, shall I say politely, bizarre our wants can get. The wanting mind has a tremendous um, variety in our minds, tremendous proliferation and diffusion throughout our lives. And here in America, as maybe we're trying to uh, condition all the world, the advertising industry has somehow succeeded in getting a hold of the knowledge of how to stimulate our desires. And their success depends on our buying into the shop till you drop mentality, which most of us discover here in rampant form. 
This craving comes because of the pleasure in experience and not seeing that pleasantness itself is unable to provide happiness. In fact, craving can never lead to happiness and it can never be satisfied. What we want today is not going to be satisfactory for tomorrow. Not only for tomorrow, for the next moment. And you may have noticed how as soon as one desire is satisfied, another one appears. It's not what we desire. It's desiring itself that needs to be seen and let go of. Not only is it experiences of having more, getting more pleasantness that we want, we can also crave for meditation experiences, crave for meditation or uh, insight knowledge, crave for those things that we hear about from up here or from other students. And no matter how subtle and how elevated and how dharmic it is, it's still craving. Aversion, too, is a form of craving. Craving for the opposite of what we are averse to. It's an attachment to the belief that pleasure is a way to happiness. So the first of these proliferated states of mind is conceit or comparing mind. The second is the wanting mind or craving. The third is our beliefs, our views and opinions. The Buddha said, the wrong view of personality belief or ego belief has everywhere and at all times most misled and deluded beings. The wrong view of personality belief or ego belief has most confused and deluded and misled beings. Our views and opinions that we have of who we are and where we're going and what we're doing and why these views have their source in delusion, not seeing things clearly. These views and opinions are the opposite of wisdom, which is seeing things as they are. The most pernicious and long-standing, subtly rooted belief or wrong view that we have is the view or sense that there is a I, a being, an ego, a soul, an atta, or something in here that lives on and on. 
eternally that has been being born and will continue to be born and doesn't die. When we have this belief that there is a I, that there is an ego, that there's something in here that all of this experience is happening to, there are numerous sub-beliefs, views and opinions that result from it. And the first is belief or the, uh, the belief that this I is eternal, that this soul or this ego is going to last forever, that it has been being born, will continue to be born, and is somehow on this path of perfection and light and greater um, spiritual maturity or something forever. continuing even beyond the death of this body. But some people don't buy that. Some people go to the belief that, yes, there still is a soul or a ego here that this is all happening to, but in fact, when the body dies, it also dies. No continuance to another life, to another, ex- to another existence, and that this ego dissolves with the death of the body. Another belief is having a wrong understanding of karma. Some believing that everything we experience now is a result of our karma. All of our good luck, all of our bad luck is a result of karma. Wrong understanding. Karma is only one of the conditioning influences of our experience not the sole conditioning agent of our experience. Or some believe in a God, a capital G or a small g, some other being, some supreme being that can control me, this ego, this personality here. Believing that God or gods or goddesses are responsible for our actions are responsible for the seasons, the weather, and everything that occurs. Another false belief, false understanding, is not believing in the cause-effect relationship of the mind and the body. Believing that the mind has no effect over the body, or the body has no effect over the mind, not understanding conditionality. And I think many of us here have maybe somehow abandoned all of these beliefs. Don't really believe in an eternal soul. Don't really believe that the soul is going to die with this body. Have some vague, maybe hope, or fear of karma being true, and somehow have kind of wrapped up a a very non-specific, not really very well, not very clear uh, set of beliefs that's our own, rooted in all traditions, validated by all practices. The Buddha taught 
that man or woman or beings, egos or personality, is but a mere conventional designation of that which can be directly experienced of the mind and the body. The mind and the body being a rather self-sustaining and self-consuming process of impersonal laws of nature. For example, in listening to this talk, in hearing what is being said, most of us believe, I am hearing. The Buddha, the power of the Buddha's mind to take the experience of hearing and analyze it, reveal to him that indeed what's happening is that as you sit there, sound waves come through the air, striking the eardrum or the sensitivity of the ear, if there's nothing in between to block the sound. And hearing happens automatically. Cause and effect. Not Joe or Sam or Carol or Bill or Sally hearing. Sound waves, ear sensitivity, giving rise to hearing. we can begin to discover whether the Buddha's understanding and teaching is true or not in this practice. Not by thinking about it. If we are unable to practice, to see the impermanent nature of experience, to see the inability of experience to provide that fulfillment and satisfaction. And if we don't see that indeed all experience is conditional and non-autonomous, then we're confused. We can believe that wanting and craving can lead to happiness that indeed there is an I better or not so good as others that endures forever. So we see here as yogis that the mind proliferates tremendous thoughts, feelings, uh, judgments, ideas, speculation in these three areas. especially our self-judgments, negative, positive, or neutral, our wanting and not getting, and the doubt and confusion that results from our wrong or misunderstandings of our experience. Now, the trouble with you 
And the trouble with me is we have two good eyes and we still don't see. This practice is an attempt to clear our vision so that we can indeed begin to see more deeply into our experience, to see beneath the appearance of things, to somehow see so that we can overcome these three tendencies of proliferation in the mind. If we reflect wisely and carefully on our self-judgments, if we really looked and see now, how is it that I'm comparing myself with others? Whether it's their appearance, their, what they have, or what they do, uh, their attainments, their knowledge, their accomplishments. We can see that indeed, if we really carefully reflect, we can see that, you know what? That stuff really doesn't matter. It really doesn't determine who I am. I am not who I am because of how you are and our relationship. And that type of reflection can bring a lot of relief from our comparing and self-judging mind. But we should understand that there will always be greater beings and lesser beings. And if we place ourselves in the continuum, we may become vain or bitter in comparison. And we can reflect again reflecting, using the power of the mind to think, we can reflect that every one of us here has a mind, has a body, that probably isn't so different than ours in direct experience. We can also reflect that we know every one of us here, and in fact all beings, will die. And we can reflect also that our possessions, our knowledge, our attainments, don't really determine who we are. And these reflections can be powerful for cutting through our condition conceit, or exalted self-esteem, or lowly self-opinion. We know that everything changes. We know that the body changes, knowledge changes, attainments change, everything changes. We know that from reflection. But insight practice teaches us to really look closely, to connect with our experience, to really put our attention on our experience and see it appear and disappear. To see the mind, the body, the thoughts, factors of mind, the hindrances, the five spiritual factors, 
to see all of these things arise and disappear as and when they happen. When we can see clearly from direct experience that this momentary feeling, this momentary thought, this momentary emotion is fleeting. How can we take pride in that? It's here now and gone. How can we judge ourselves relentlessly with something that only lasts a moment? When we see clearly that in a split second, innumerable experiences come and go, which one are we going to grab onto as a perfect reflection of who I am? When we see into impermanence directly, empirically, when we observe it, when we feel it and know it, conceit or pride or solidification around a sense of I is impossible. But it happens slowly. It doesn't happen with, a, with one glimpse. Slowly over the course of time with more continuity in seeing the fleeting nature of experience, the sense of I slowly begins to dissolve. It doesn't disappear immediately. But just slowly the sense of I becomes porous, becomes weaker, becomes less fixed less solid, less substantial. The Buddha said, though with a faithful heart one takes refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, or with a faithful heart one observes sila, or morality, or develops a mind of loving-kindness, or metta, by far more meritorious is it if one cultivates the perception of impermanence, even if it is only for an instant. That's how powerful a glimpse in an instant of the impermanence of phenomena is. Far more powerful than developing faith in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, than practicing sila, or than developing metta, is a glimpse into impermanence. And it's this glimpse into impermanence that overcomes temporarily, partially, our tendency to solidify a sense of I in comparison to others. To overcome craving or the clinging proliferation of wanting in the mind. We need to see clearly that what we want and what brings us pleasure does not offer happiness. When we don't see the true nature of experience, there is hidden in our craving, the false promise 
of satisfaction. The Buddha acknowledged that there was no pleasure, no satisfaction in pleasure only. He did say that momentary satisfaction of craving was not dukkha, but that there was no permanent satisfaction in craving or pleasure. If you were to buy, if you were to go shopping for a used car, and someone at the car lot said, hey, look at this beauty, shiny, four wheels, four doors, good glass, real beauty, only $2,000, would you take it? No. Why? Because when you go buying a car, you look a little bit closer. You look under the hood, under the car, inside. You look beneath the appearance of things to see whether indeed this car is going to provide what you want. Why are we so careless in these other things that we want and take them for their appearance as being able to provide the satisfaction and the happiness that we so seek. Insight takes us beneath the appearance of things, into the true nature of the body, into the true nature of sensory experience, into the true nature of thoughts, understanding. In practice, we see the body. What do we see? Heat, itching, pressure, tightness, tension, vibrating, pulsing, itching, aching, pain, throbbing. True nature of the body. What do we see in the mind? Unhappiness, disappointment, fear, shame, guilt, envy, jealousy. Some joy, some pleasure, some... Yeah, yeah. Momentary. Sometimes it can, it can seem that our entire experience is dukkha. The body, the mind is just overwhelmingly unpleasant and unsatisfactory. And most of us hate it. But therein is the key to liberation. Aversion or the disliking of that experience blinds us to the insight into dukkha. As long as we don't like what we see, we can't see dukkha clearly because aversion is blinding us to it. And it's a powerful insight to see to really know that the mind and the body and the experience of the mind and the body cannot provide a sense of satisfaction. Why is that so hard to acknowledge? Why do we continue to run away from that insight? Why do we keep holding out for there's a good one in there somewhere? <laughs>
when we can learn to see dukkha, when we can learn to really see the unpleasant nature of the body and the mind, without aversion, craving stops. Craving just stops. What is there left to crave for? When you see the true nature of the mind and the body, what are you going to crave for? To bring you that happiness, to bring you that sense of satisfaction. This is the place in practice where freedom and liberation lies. Seeing unpleasantness prior to reaction. Freeing ourselves from craving. Freeing ourselves from the activities, the thoughts, the, the whatever it is that we do to try to get away from it, to try to get something better, to try to get something different. When we're free of that, craving stops. The mind rests in things as they are. There is a temporary sense of peace and fulfillment. Free from the suffering of craving. Thirdly, in practicing insight, we begin to see the conditional nature of all experience. We begin to see that indeed there really isn't a being in here that all this is happening to. The Buddha said that our attachment to our views and opinions is the most tenacious attachment we have. Our attachment to our opinion that there is something in here. There is me in here that all this is happening to. Our attachment to that view is the most tenacious attachment we have. We think, we hear, we do, we act, we see, we smell, we touch, we taste. When we note here, hearing, hearing, what is it that we know? Implicitly we know. Sound waves, ear sensitivity, hearing consciousness. Without constructing an eye behind it that's doing it. We know this implicitly. The same happens when we notice movements of the body, walking, bending, stretching, reaching, lifting, sitting. We know that there is movement. There's pressure, tightness, tingling, heaviness, vibrating, stretching. Not Steve bending, Steve lifting, Steve... In the direct clear experience of phenomena. There's no person there that it's happening to. We can really begin to see this when we consistently note intentions. And we offered instructions, maybe in the second week, to note your intentions prior to every major movement. And by now, I'm sure you're noting all of your intentions. And really seeing that indeed it is intentions which conditions behavior. Not Steve acting, Steve moving, 
Steve talking. It's the intention conditioning behavior. Intention conditioning, standing, sitting, walking, eating, lifting, moving, placing. By noting intentions and what follows, we see the cause and effect relationship between the mind and the body. If we don't note intentions, we don't see cause and effect. We believe, I am walking, because we didn't note that intention. And therein lies freedom from this sense of I, this false view, this false belief, this tenacious wrong view that the Buddha spoke about. It's important to note intentions. As the practice develops, as we see more clearly the nature of the mind and the body, and we see how fleeting experience really is, and we see that indeed experience of the mind and the body cannot provide permanent contentment, fulfillment. And when we see that the mind and the body are out of control, they're not ours. These insights into the Anicca, Anatta, and Dukkha characteristics become stronger and clearer and more pervasive by just hanging in there, noticing each and every momentarily arising experience. The sense of I, in comparison to others, weakens and fades away. The sense of craving as a source for happiness falls away. The belief in I am weakens. And we really live with true insight knowledge. Vipassana means seeing all the characteristics. Vi, all characteristics. Pasana, seeing. Seeing all the characteristics. Seeing the anicca, anatta, dukkha characteristics of all phenomena. And when we're free of, temporarily, partially, free of craving, of conceit and confusion, we're getting closer to real happiness. We're getting closer to the real source of happiness. It's a happiness not of excitement, fulfillment, enjoyment, but it's real subtle. Seeing things the way they are. Seeing the truth. Seeing the Dhamma. And developing a verified faith and confidence in the Buddha, the teaching, and the fact that there are those who indeed see things the way they are. So let's sit for a couple of minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.